I think about some of the calls, these really powerful moments that really, I think, get to the core of what you're talking about here. And it was those moments where actually the salesperson says to the customer, I, I don't think that this is right for you. And, right. and I know you want the premium version, but I don't think it's a good spend of your money. Or what? Our competitors are actually much better at this than we are. We've chosen to deploy our resources elsewhere. In some of those moments, just really get to the heart of what you're saying, which is if you're about helping the customer, then you're going to be completely truthful, forthright, transparent. No, that's your objective. The money, the deals, the closure, the client loyalty, that stuff follows. Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Matt Dixon. And Matt is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. If you know, Matt is a Wall Street Journal bestselling co-author of The Challenger Sale, The Effortless Experience, The Challenger Customer, and his new book, The Jolt Effect. And he's a founding partner of DCM Insights. My other guests for today's discussion about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and increasing win rates are Mark Cox. And Mark is the founder of In the Funnel Sales Coaching and host of a great podcast as well called The Selling Well Podcast. And also joining us is Richard Harrison. Richard is the founder of the Harris Consulting Group. Two quick items of business before we jump into today's discussion. First, quick favor to ask if you're enjoying this new podcast, please, if you could, leave a rating or review for the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Receiving this feedback is really important, and so appreciate your help with this. Second, over 50,000 sellers and sales leaders subscribe to receive my weekly newsletter called Win Rate Wednesday. Each week, you receive one actionable tip to accelerate your win rate. So get a bunch of other great advice as well. Subscribe, visit andypaul.com. Okay, ready? Well, let's jump into the discussion. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Win Rate Podcast. I'm so excited to have my three guests today. I've got uh, Matt Dixon, got Mark Cox, we have Richard Harris, and I'm going to give everybody a chance to introduce themselves, even though you just heard an introduction in the monologue. But Matt, kick us off quickly about yourself. Oh, gosh. You made me go first. Okay. So there's no template to follow here. But Matt Dixon, very nice to nice to be with you again, Andy, and great to be with Mark and Richard as well. Thanks for inviting me. I don't know. My parents don't know what I do for a living. They just know I live in DC and work for a strange organization. So they assume I'm a spy, which I am not. Yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't well, have been invited to the WinRay podcast. But not I don't know. Um, no, not that you know of. Yeah. So I'm a, I think I'm best described as a sales anthropologist, so not a salesperson. Mm. I'm not a, I've never carried a bag. I've never led a sales team, unlike I suspect a lot of the folks on this event. But I'm a researcher by trade. So I bring right. research methods to study changes in customer buying behavior and what that means for salespeople and marketing organizations. Right. So that's kind of what I've spent my career doing. Um, written a few books and I'm co founder of a company called uh, DCM Insights. Uh, it's a small book. People might have heard the Challenger sale. Only yeah. if you liked it. In which case, Only if you liked it, right. If not, I like it. Right? <laughs> I have to admit, I like the Challenger customer better. People who read both usually say that, yeah. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah no, I just, I something about the Challenger customer, I thought, wow, this is... really like the new book. That's what Mark I, I like the new book, especially the Jolt Effect, not to ignore the I new love book. the Jolt Effect. Yes. Okay, Mark. I'm Mark Cox, and I lead a company called In the Funnel. We're a group of sales coaches and consultants that help companies sell better with sales training for leaders or managers or SDRs or sales enablement consulting. And I spent most of my career running sales organizations in large technology companies or outsourcing businesses, and I'm a big fan of the Jolt Effect. 
<laughs> Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. And I'm a big fan of Mark Cox. So and you're also the source of all this smog and smoke that's coming through to New York City. And Sorry places. about it. Not personally, yeah. but I am Canadian, so I do yes. apologize for that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Richard. Yeah, I think I want to reframe this conversation. Sorry, that was too easy. You will get lots of snark and dad jokes for me today. <laughs> Richard Harris founded the Harris Consulting Group and the Servant Sales event and podcast. And in short, I teach reps how to earn the right to ask questions, which questions to ask and when, mm-hmm. as well as supporting organizations with their go-to-market strategies. Big fan of Challenger Sale. Have not read the others because I'm in the middle of writing my book and I want to make sure that I try Woo! to stay fresh and yeah. not borrow. I don't want to unintentionally borrow something from somebody. And you're I'll right. flashbacks from that experience. So my, oh God, I'm right there with you. It's, I'm at three years too late and four years in the making of this book. But thank you to Andy because Andy turned me on to this publisher and it really gave That's me some great, great advice. So I, I'm always it's all very grateful to always speak and see Andy. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to reading the book in final form and but before I go, you brought something up, Richard. You talked about dad jokes. So give us a dad joke. I already did. It was the reframe. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. Yeah. Really no, I need a classic, like a sales like a classic dad joke. Right. Joke. That's just low-hanging dad jokes are just low-hanging fruit. Oh, dad, just a classic dad joke. You got one? Working hard or hardly working, guys. I don't know. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I could probably ask my kids. They'd probably have these memorized better than I do. All right. So broad questions to kick this off today is, in your minds, and we'll Give everybody a chance to answer this one. What what makes somebody a great seller? Oh boy, Don't Matt, start first. with you. Oh gosh, you did it. you did it. Well, you're on my <laughs> oh, you're on my list first. I rotate as I go through, but this okay. one you're first. All right, thanks. First on intros, first on the hardest question you're going to ask. So, yeah. but you know, I think it's evolving. One of the things we always talk about is how we things like challenge or jolt or what have you are actually more a reflection of how customer buying behavior is changing. Mm-hmm. And what we've tried to do is follow kind of the lead steer effect of what are the very people at the very front of the pack doing to adapt their sales approach before they're being before they're reading books about it, they're, they're hearing it on podcasts, they're going to training about it. The, the most gifted sellers are kind of figuring it out before everyone mm-hmm. else. And then it's our job as researchers, we study that and then we try to distill it, give language to it, support it with data, et cetera. And I think one of the one of the things I would say, this is one of the things we talk about in the Jolt Effect, is the idea that increasingly, yeah, I think salespeople are now coming to, especially right now in this market, are coming to this realization that we've always we've grown up in this world where we think the status quo is our biggest competition. We've been told this for forever in sales, and I think now we understand that is a really big reason we lose deals uh, in overcoming the status quo. Is you're not collecting two hundred bucks in pass and go if you don't even Canadian dollars in pass and go market. <laughs> If you don't- Loonies, we call them. Loonies, yeah, that's right. If you don't actually overcome the status quo, so you got to do that. But what we discovered in the Jolt Effect is that there's this whole second frontier, which I guess on the one hand, like maybe it was there before and we just never realized it. But I think on the other hand, it's something that's actually gotten worse. And especially in environments like we're in right now, which is this battle to overcome, not indifference, which is the status quo battle, but to overcome indecision. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a little, it's a that what marks a shift from one to the other. We found great salespeople do both. It's not that they don't, fight the status quo and beat it and overcome it. They have to do that. But they also know that once you convince a customer that they got to move forward, the status quo is not acceptable anymore. You got to move forward in a new way. This is a top priority for your business. Let's go. The next thing you got to do is not literally, but figuratively put your arm around the customer's shoulder and say, this is going to be, you're making a great move here. And it's still the confidence that gets the customer to actually put pen to paper and say, yeah, you know what? 
I'm rationally bought in, but now I'm emotionally committed to this too. And that's a really hard thing to do. And so I think as I think the picture of what makes for great selling is evolving as we continue to unpack it and understand it. And I'm excited to find out what's next and how does it continue to evolve? Okay. Yeah, I agree. And we're going to come back and dig into a couple points you brought up. Richard, as I was thinking about the what separates the best sellers are two things. One, the ability to ask open-ended questions, not because you don't get a yes or no answer, because yes and no answers are good in the right time and in the right moment. They're good at it because it forces them to shut up. Like that's the best thing. Like that mm. nobody ever, I ask people, why is it so good about it? Open-ended questions. Oh, it's not a yes. I'm like, no, it forces us to shut up. That's mm-hmm. the first thing. By then shutting up, it's about painting pictures of pain, right? Nobody cares what we do. They only care about the pain we solve in relation to their context. You know, for me, when I say, when people say, well, what do you do? Well, I teach reps how to earn the right to ask questions, which questions to ask and when. There's not a revenue leader in the world who doesn't know exactly what that is. They can picture the grumpiest Gus on their sales team mm-hmm. and know that person and the rest of their team needs to know how to do that. So that to me, those two things are the pieces that align. And I think I'm in full agreement with Matt, by the way. I think we just have different ways of saying the same thing. And he goes after the data on it. I just go after the STFU. You're wrong. <laughs> Arguments. The STFU is more memorable than the data, though. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> We Mark, could work you... on that together, by the way. We can. Oh, yeah. I see, I see a partnership in the making here, Richard. <laughs> Mark, what do you think? I think the best reps actually have the intent of wanting to help the client achieve a better outcome in the future. And so sometimes that means that's going to you know, be a sale for my organization, and sometimes maybe not. But if I'm going into every discussion where my objective is to help them achieve a better future or desired outcome, And I have the capability of doing that because I have a high degree of industry acumen, business acumen, and actually understand them and their environment. So a little bit of what Richard said in terms of earning the right to proceed, I think the best reps do that. And I think clients today and prospects and buyers, they can sense intent and they're completely fatigued with folks who are working with them only to their own benefit. They want folks who come in almost as management consultants to say, listen, we're going to work together to figure out if there's a way of getting you to a better future. And if there isn't, I'm going to step away. Or if there isn't, I'm going to point you in the direction of something else. So I think that's what the best reps do today. And he just painted a really good picture of pain. That's exactly what I'm saying. Everybody who listens to that can go, I know exactly what Mark's talking about because I've been there, I've seen it, and I've done it. I was going to ask uh, Andy if this is, do you have permission to jump in? But Oh, yeah, jump in, jump in. <laughs> Richard broke glass. There's no so rules. Gonna... <laughs> Matt, there's no rules. No rules. There's no rules in this match. <laughs> so I, you I don't agree. know me yet, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know. You're getting to know me. <laughs> I love that point, uh, Richard. And I, I think it was, it's it's so interesting, Mark. The When I think about some of the calls we studied in the Jolt Effect, they're these really powerful moments that really, I think, get to the core of what you're talking about here. And it was those moments where actually the salesperson says to the customer, I actually want, I don't think that this is right for you. And, right. and I know you want the premium version, but I don't think it's a good spend of your money. Or what? Our competitors are actually much better at this than we are. We've chosen to deploy our resources elsewhere. And some of those moments just really get to the heart of what you're saying, which is it's ultimately, if you're about helping the customer, then you're mm-hmm. going to be completely truthful, forthright, transparent. No, that's your objective. The money, the deals, the closure, the client loyalty, that stuff follows. But, but it's that intent of what is in the best interest of the customer. And do we always have that in mind? And, yeah, and I agree. Pretty, 
a good I'm example jump in of again because like- what Richard does all the time, but I say this a lot: is that it's our job to get our customers to fall in trust with us, mm-hmm. not yeah, fall in love. Absolutely. With us. They can totally fall in love with the book, or the process, or the service, or the platform, but they got to fall in trust with us. And I, again, we're going to just sound like we all love each other, which is okay. We do. You know, it, it is. I was just going to say, I'm Canadian. I actually do love you guys. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. no, he's not Canadian. But getting them to trust for <laughs> being Canadian. And except when we're playing hockey. You're okay. Yeah, except you're... when we're playing hockey. But I do love you guys. Yeah. There's just so much value in saying it's not a good fit as the salesperson, right? There's just so much more value. And I think we've all been around long enough that I've said that to people and they've come back to me two or three years later. Sure. Because of, like oh, they've yeah. said, when you were first told me and you sent me over to so and like Mark was saying, like, referring them to people, they remember that stuff. And that just pays compounding interest. And now, a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizant, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizant's U.S. data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. 7 million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizant offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizant. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizant's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizant.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizant.com slash data sample. Now, we're all sort of violent agreement about this here on this call, but there is... I think this huge gap between this perspective and the way that selling is practiced by the vast oh, yeah. majority of sellers <laughs> yeah. out there, right? That's so, called job security. Yeah, us. job security for sales trainers. <laughs> but a I mean, gap that will never be fully closed. <laughs> right. But I think there's something, the sort of the perspective many sellers has really is informed by management and by leadership at the top. Right. And there have been numerous examples over the last several years, including most recently from Gartner saying, hey, here's our chart. Here are the nine most important factors influencing the buyer's selection of a vendor, right? They can't publish this at their con- conference in Vegas a few weeks ago. And you look at those nine reasons, and I was actually I was presenting them to a group yesterday. I said, tell me, what's missing on this list? And everybody looks at it. Somebody says, oh, well, the product. Oh, yeah. And the price. Oh, yeah. Product and price competitive product at a competitive price is just table stakes these days. Right. But the key differentiation is the experience the buyer has with the seller. Yep. The data is not just Gartner. There's other sources I can talk about found from extensive win-loss analysis interviews with buyers, thousands of interviews summarized into the company Trinity Perspectives in Australia, summarized into nine reasons why you win, nine reasons why you lose, product Mm. and price completely absent. And it's, okay, we know this is not new. And actually, you guys brought this up in the Challenger sale. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think it was you, what, it's 3% of purchase decision. Sell, yeah. yeah. I mean, I wrote about this <laughs> at the same time my first book. Yeah. It's like, why is it taking so long? Right? Because, you know, Challenger sales, how long ago? 
2011. 2011, right. So 12 years, my first book was not nearly as popular as yours, but same theme, how you sell is more as important as what you sell. Why is this message not seemingly getting through to leadership and management that's saying, look, this is the way we need to be enabling our people, training our people, socializing our sellers to say, this is the way we go to market. Because there's no standard set of operating guidelines and procedures for sales today. And there's no single source of sales education. $70 billion spent on sales training every year. Gazillion people with respect like me and Richard and, and you, Matt. There's just so many things out there. 40 years ago, there was a single source of sales education, or there was 10 of them. IBM, Xerox, Kodak, Motorola, so on and so forth, that actually provided reasonably consistent, standard, solid sales training that gave somebody a stamp of credibility, almost like a profession. Today, it's just been so splintered. I don't think a new young person coming out of college or university would know where to go if they wanted to get proper formal sales training that would be recognized in the market. I think there's- I would disagree. I would disagree. Part of the challenge, I think, is that there's only about 300 universities that even offer a sales degree. Someone can right. tell me if that's Yeah, new. it's roughly right. So, in the United States, yeah. Or courses. They offer yeah. courses. And and I also think that, when there's actually some that have a degree, but I also think the young people are better off than we are because they actually do know where to go. They know where to find it. They don't know which one's right. They don't know which one's the good one, but they're way more intuitive about, well, I'm going to go into sales. I better do some, re like this, just nature that's natural to them. Right. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm like, I'm not dis disagreeing because we need to disagree about something. <laughs> There'll be more. That's all. <laughs> it's all good. Right. It's kind of quote. And I, when I harp on this too, is that, and I say the same thing we've all said, which is it's not what you do. It's how you do business, why people will buy from you. And part of the challenge that we have is that we continually repeat the same bullshit lines we've heard. There's a buyer's journey and they're further down the road than we are. Blah, 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 blah. Guess what? You know what? There's no such thing as a buyer's journey, period. It doesn't exist. There's only the buyer's experience. It's a seller's journey. The seller creates the journey. The buyer has to go through it. And it's their experience through that journey that matters the most. If I cold call someone, guess what? They're not in a journey. They're not in a buyer's journey. I'm catching them in an experience. If someone comes to my website, they're not on a journey. They're looking for the best experience. That's where, and so market, this is now, this is the part where I think marketing and the parts that I really love about challenger and stuff is that's where marketing and sales start to align. And when you can get there and you can start to reframe your thoughts around this buyer's journey, seller's journey, no, it's a buyer's experience. That's where the opens. That's where things I think really connect for people. I think there's a, it's funny because there's a, Back to your question, Andy, I think about why, how come, like, why are we still where we are? Right. I think it's because there's this, candidly, I think organizations talk out of both sides of their mouth. So I think on the one hand, yeah. it's like yeah. what we just said. On the other hand, all their incentives, rewards, and sing signals they send are like, be a spam cannon. Yep. Just yep. Like, be shitty. Activity. Be yeah. shitty. Yeah. And yep. you know what? So on the one hand, it's yes, like we should land and expand and we should start small and that de-risks the deal for the customer to overcome their indecision, their fear of failure and tell them when we're not good at this. But on the other hand, it's like, what do you mean you're taking the deal value down from a million dollars to a hundred thousand dollars? Like we got a goal to hit. When you're right. going to miss your number, you're that, definitely not going to Canada. Isn't that a problem though? Big bites. The reason we don't get better is because we have ridiculous goals and we've always had ridiculous goals, right? And there's nothing wrong with a stretch goal. And I'm not saying that people can't make money. We should. There's nothing wrong with being a little greedy about money if you're in sales, hundred percent. It's just, I think 
to your point, even further up the chain up there and those goals put pressure. And so what do people do when they're under pressure? They do the same thing they've always yeah. done before. Right. And by the way, Mark or Matt, if either of you, because if you think there's too many sales trainers out there, you can buy me. I'm open. Like, it's a, I'm open. <laughs> By the way, we'll talk a little later, Richard. We will talk a little later. Yeah, you do bring up this, this very good point about there's things out there and then the top down. But I do think we have to realize there is pressure. We have to succeed in business. We actually have to grow businesses so everybody in our company has a good future and they have growth and have potential. But if the organization as a whole doesn't focus on adding value to their client base, they won't be around long term. They won't, unlikely that lots of them are going to be around long term. So I think as sellers today, we have to think about joining organizations that actually care about the customer and put the customer first. And there may have been those very large software companies at a certain period of time in enterprise software that maybe didn't put the client first. And they're hard to, to extract from certain businesses. Okay, they get away with certain things. But today, if the organization isn't putting a, isn't a customer first mentality and you're in professional sales, don't work for them. Go find one that is. There's lots of companies looking for talented salespeople. Got to be proud of what you do. And it's easier to be proud of what you do if your organization actually cares about the end client. Well, and I'm going to dig down into something Richard was saying and follow up on that is, is that, I mean, I'm sort of extrapolating a little bit what you said, is that basically the way that we set goals drives this continuous bad behavior that we see in sales. And so if that's the case, what's the alternative to it, right? I mean, I personally think quotas are lost relevance. I mean, if you have a, a target that no one's hitting, as the data showing that most sellers aren't hitting it, what's the value of continuing to use that as a way to measure some level of performance. I'll throw out the heretical counterpoint. And this is one of those things that I'm, I kind of want to believe I'm skeptical of. But I think mm -hmm. if, you, if you're anybody who's followed the Dan Pink work around yeah. autonomy, mastery, purpose, and what really gets people in as in a world of complex uh, complexity, not in a right. world of simple tasks. But if we believe the world of selling solutions is becoming more complex and the journey is in the experience are becoming more complex more fraught, then what gets people to perform at their highest level isn't just paying them to turn a screw. It's actually giving them a sense of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So if you took right. that to its logical extreme and you look at some of the companies out there that have, again, this is the heretical thing, but abolished commission for salespeople, and they put their salespeople on the same pay plan that everybody else in the company is on. And a couple of things happen there. One is you actually get a lot more people jump. So these are companies like Cameron Surface Systems, Microchip that have done this and have actually experienced explosive growth since they've done that. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest benefits they found is it attracted people into sales who never would do it before because they're afraid of putting comp at risk. But they knew, like Cameron knew, we need the people who worked on the rig, the oil rig for decades, who can talk to a senior operator on the customer side. Uh, microchip, the same kind of thing. We need our chip designers and our, our, our technical experts who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the CFO or the CEO or the CTO of a customer organization. But I could, ne I could never convince those people to take a sales job because they didn't want to put pay at risk. And so when right. they got rid of that, and they said, hey, we're going to all be bonused on growth. They still have objectives and growth sure. objectives. And to Richard's point, those things may still be misset, but but it changes the dynamic around what's important. Again, it, that's if you, I don't know if people subscribe to that or not. I don't think so. I have a question for you, man. In nature, but yeah. yeah. I have a question specific to that because I, I've, in the simple terms, right? You're an A, you've got 100K base, 100K OTE or a 200 OTE, so 50-50. In those scenarios, because I actually agree with this, my belief, and maybe you have, I'm asking if you have the data, I'd rather try and pay that rep 160 
maybe some company objectives yeah. mm-hmm. and they stay loyal, there's less pressure. And then it's a whole lot ha- harder for someone to actually recruit them away because the base is so high. Yeah, that's interesting. Have that what you're seeing? I, so I don't have the data on that. I think okay. partly because there are so few companies that actually do this. Um, right. I, I yeah. think it's a very interesting and compelling hypothesis as to what would happen if you did that. Well, but right. you look back at one of the tech superstars of the 60s and 70s, specifically more of the 70s, a little bit into the 80s, digital equipment didn't pay commissions. And they were the rocket ship for a while. They made some miscalculations. I'm just so excited on the, on the product side. to know what that is, to know who digital equipment is. <laughs> <laughs> But our companies have done this in the past and been successful with it. And I think to your point about the autonomy, mastery, and purpose is, yeah, I remember I sort of made a career out of recruiting engineers into sales. Yeah. And the first response from them when I said, look, yeah, I'd like you to consider this role here. They'd say, because we were selling large, complex communication systems, they'd say, well, I can't convince somebody to buy something they don't want. And I said, well, that's perfect because that's not the job. The job is to help solve problems for people. Oh, I can do that because that's what I do all every day as an engineer. Yeah, that's great. And we weren't paying commission. Yeah, we were paying bonuses for people based on performance. And yeah, I think it's one of the, to me, sort of one of the ironies is that people I think that are successful, that stay in, in sales for a long time, aren't really primarily driven by money. I know Gallup has done some research on this. There's this intrinsic motivators that exist beyond money. But if you're really in sales to help somebody, you can't help them if you can't win their business. We had this, somebody asked us a long time ago, Andy. So on the heels of the challenger research where people want to go hire challengers and we like said, there's good news and bad news. <laughs> good news is there's tons of challengers out there. The bad news is none of them have sales experience. So they're, right. And basically there's not a lot of them out there who are born ready-made challengers. You just bring them in off the street, drop them in your sales organization. They have sales experience and go. But there are lots of people who have that mindset who are in consulting or teachers who are engineers and they just need to be able to to sell. They need to learn the ropes and learn the process and the discipline of sales. And it got gets down to what's the, which is the thing you'd rather teach somebody to do. To be, and this is a specific challenger, but be a challenger, be a salesperson. It represents an interesting choice. So. Oh, well, yeah. But it, but it gets into, and that's interesting. You bring that up too, because it's, it brings up this whole bias that you hear all the time. It's like, yeah. But I talk about hiring engineers into sales. Yeah. They just don't have the people skills. I'm like, yeah, oh, it. come on. I met some of them. That's actually true. (laughs) They know how to form a connection with somebody. They're innately curious people. They understand the value of really not just superficially knowing something, but truly understanding it. I mean, yeah, people are people. I mean, the people skills that historically are sort of ascribed to sellers sort of off-putting to most of our buyers based on the surveys, right? Gartner saying any sales leader who says that they don't have the right skills is probably a terrible sales leader because that's their job to teach them. Their job as a sales leader, if I'm hiring an engineer... And I can talk to that engineer and say, hey, here you get to talk to customers and I can spin it the right way and reframe it the right way. And I can do that. Then if I can't do that, then I'm a terrible leader. Now, that doesn't mean every engineer I talk to wants to do it. No. That's a different discussion. Not everybody wants to talk to a customer. Right. And that's that's fair. You got to realize across the board, certain people that get energy from this kind of conversation right now that we're all having. Yeah. Certain people where it just drains their energy. Uh, they hung up a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> Actually, so, thank you. So I don't, I'm not a believer buddy into a salesperson. Yeah. And, well, no, and again, I defer to both of you. Teachers to me are some of the best people to hire into sales. One, because they're money motivated, right? But they have the skill to listen. 
and the skill to re-educate and to do stuff. And I don't know, Mark or, or Matt or Andy, if you have the same experience, but whenever I go look for people, those are some of the first I try. An interview question we asked like on the after the challenge work came out, which was teach me something that you're pretty sure I don't know anything about. I'll give you 10 minutes and go for it. Yeah. Hmm. Japanese poetry, like some sort of engineering concept, doesn't matter. But what's your passion for teaching those and conveying those ideas? So. Well, so I'm going to go back to sort of build on something Richard was just saying about the sales managers, right? It is because I started this whole sort of discussion thread saying the problem starts at the top in terms of how we perceive sales and the culture that's built is... Uh, it's maybe frontline management. If we're really to say, okay, take that, how many billions of dollars you talked about in sales training. And right now we probably spend 95% of it on training sellers and maybe 5% on management. What if we shifted that balance? What if we spent 95% of it on frontline managers and yeah, really start focusing there for a change? Because I think when we have these issues, we talk about, you know, low quota attainment and I've got a, a way we could fix that really quickly, I think, with from a manager standpoint, you know, low win rates and so on is put the onus on management to the point you made, Richard, is that it's really their job to develop the people. Is stop worrying about reporting on all the metrics and so on. Is develop your folks. Yeah, which is also part of the upper leadership who think that one person right. can manage 12 people, right? And then they turn into dashboard managers and they wonder why. Right. So underinvesting in sales leadership. And now a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win-back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed-loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win-back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win-back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed-lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win-loss interview when the deal was marked closed-loss in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Lego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com demo. That is alego.com slash demo. It's funny because it's one of those things that I think is absolutely uh, true. The data is very, very clear that um, the frontline sales manager is the linchpin 
of like a sales organization's performance where yep. every initiative, every yes. skill development, everything lives and dies by the capability of that frontline manager to coach and develop their develop motivate their team and engage their engage their people. But and it's and Andy, I agree with you completely, but I think it's one of those like talking out of both sides of your mouth. Like every sales leader I've ever met will absolutely say, I totally agree it's all about sales managers. And then when stuff gets cut and when they got to make the hard call, the money goes to train reps or whatever net latest technology based bell or whistle, it doesn't go to developing frontline. Exactly. Exactly. Well, there's a couple in fairness and love to the sales leaders. Their job's almost impossible. I think we have to acknowledge you talked about that as well, Richard, in terms of the top down. I think they have the most three most demanding stakeholders out there. They're dealing with clients as a sales leader all the time sales team is unrelenting needs and they're dealing with a board or an executive team and then their scorecards on public domain, right? Their performance uh, scorecard is public domain. Nobody else around the executive team has a scoreboard scorecard that's actually public domain. It's the hardest job out there. I'm completely with you, Matt. It's amazing to us that we run sales training for sales leaders and for salespeople. Sales, no one ever puts themselves into a sales training program. The sales teams come to our program because their leaders told them to go. The only, when we're doing a sales leader program, they're there because this CEO told them to go. They don't actually put themselves forward for training. They also don't typically look for outside help to coach and develop their own team. Andy, I know at Infinitum, you and or themselves. They don't look for outside help to coach themselves either. They don't. And I think it's this fear of that they're showing they're going to be vulnerable maybe, or their tenures are so short that it's it's a bit of a concern. But I know you've used this analogy with soccer lots of times, Andy. Of course, I've got to use hockey. The guys on the Leafs, they have seven coaches, eight coaches, shooting coach, strength coach, nutrition coach, mindset coach, fitness Mm -hmm. coach, not just one leader. They have a whole team helping them perform at that level. And I think salespeople need the same thing, but sales leaders aren't as comfortable bringing outside parties in to help. And I think that's a big challenge right now. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's a great example. And it's something that I'm glad you sort of reminded me to bring it into the conversation. It's just why it gets back to the leadership at the top, right? Is we want to do sales, but we want to do it as cheaply as possible. And we're not really as concerned about doing it in a modern fashion because to your point, Mark, we understand the science of performance management has evolved tremendously in the last 10, 15, 20 yeah. years. The teams that are there, the organizations that are using it most effectively, oftentimes are professional sports or top amateur sports. Yeah. Why is management other than cost, right? Why are they so reluctant to hire these specialists that we know we can look at examples that can be benchmark soccer, hockey, whatever, and say, there's a better way of doing this, right? There's specialized knowledge about aspects of performance and we could break it down for sales the same way. Why are people so afraid to do that? I'll say this is yeah. like especially cynical view, I think, which is not where we want to go. It's a dark place. But I would say there's there, there is this undercurrent out there now and certainly in the wake of like all the chat GPT and generative AI, much ballyhoo technology right. innovation going on out there in, in the AI space. There is this kind of undercurrent of developing people, whether it's reps or managers, is actually hard. Behavior change is hard. Skill development is hard. And wouldn't it be just 
better to just hire a machine to do it or to, to or at least have a machine to pull pull the right. strings on the marionette and just tell them what to do and what to say and have them right. follow. And I think if there's anything we learned in the Jolt Factory research, it was that there's a decidedly human part of selling that is a really hard time believing will ever be done by machines. But the best mm-hmm. salespeople figured out that if you want to sell more, you got to really figure it out that, that indecision over instilling the confidence, overcoming the fear of failure. But there is this sense, I feel like, where companies look at like developing human beings versus just buying another piece of technology that just kind of makes sales a paint-by-number exercise somehow and removes the variation and the this, that all the, that quirky stuff that people bring to the, the world of sales. I don't know. I think it's I think it's a fairly cynical view, but I do kind of no, get I the think, vibe because you look at what people spend money on and that's what they're spending I, money on. I don't so. think it's cynical at all. I mean, I think it's right on, right? I mean, it gets back to what we were talking about sort of at the top of the conversation, which is, look, there's all this data that's coming out. Gartner One, these others we talk about, they're not the only ones saying, and to Richard's point, it's the experience, right? It's the buyer's experience with the seller as they go through whatever this process is we're going to put on, the name on it. And that's not going to change. That's becoming even more important these days because, again, look at any sort of product category, certainly the tech space. And one of my favorites to beat up on this is conversational intelligence. Yeah, There's more than 40 companies in that space. As a buyer, what are you supposed to do to make a decision? Well, it's not going to be the features because the features, they all basically do the same thing. They all fundamentally cost about the same amount. Yeah. On what basis do you make your decision? Well, against that experience, and I don't think that's going to change. I think that part is going to continue. I think you guys read Jeffrey Colvin's book, Humans Are Underrated. Great book. I've I've now read it, but it's on the list now. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great book. And he basically talks about the future of employment in the world of AI. And But he says your ability to thrive in this environment is going to be based on your ability to become more intensely human. And I think that's such a critical point, right? This is what we need to be enabling our sellers to do is this, how do we deliver these experiences, these human, fundamentally human experiences that differentiate themselves in the eyes of the buyers from the competitors? And I think that becomes more uh, on point as we bring more AI into selling, because at some point somebody says, look, I need to talk to a human, right? Because they're going to be able to understand me in a way that the machine isn't. In fact, there's actually been some studies on this already in the medical field where people say, look, yeah, I've used your medical decision assist system, AI driven, but there's a point where I started stop using as much because yes, I may have a, a disease that a hundred thousand other people have. No one feels my pain the way I feel my pain. Yeah. No one feels my discomfort the way I feel my discomfort. And only a human's really able to get to that understanding. Well, the latest technology that, and you guys have probably all seen it, but it's the technology that'll do a assessment of somebody's digital footprint and give them, as I'm speaking to them, I get their disk assessment. So I understand their personality, makeup, and and so on and so forth. And then it'll, in the same token, it will also do an automatic assessment of the business, what's going on, their, com- their competitive SWAT, the key issues, and so forth. And I think the irony is it's na- AI is now being leveraged to humanize the conversation. Now I'm trying to figure out what is Andy a driver or is he an influencer? How do I speak to Andy so I can connect with him? So I, I think it's a little bit of back to the future because hundred years ago when Dale Carnegie said, hey, you can get, make more people, you, you can make more friends by being interested in them mm-hmm. in two months than you can in two years by trying to get them interested in you. So if we're using it for the right purpose, which is have a better conversation about helping them achieve that desired outcome and figure out how do I have that conversation? 
How do I connect with Andy? How do I build trust with Andy? I think they're amazing tools. And I've been, guys, I think companies spend a lot of money on their people today. You know, according to Frank Cespedes in his book, if I may have the numbers wrong, but sales management, the works, I think he said it's five grand a person on sales and they spend 20% more on training salespeople than they do spend training any other person in the company on average. I think there's good money being spent, $70 billion, I think is the number he put in his book. But I just don't know that they're getting the return for it today. And maybe, Andy, that goes to your point about where it's being spent all on the sales team, but on the leadership and so forth. Yeah, well, and the yeah, data wanna... from various studies is that the highest leverage you get for your dollar investment in sales training is training your managers and having your managers will be more effective coaches. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I want to come back to the question that you brought sure. up, which was, why is it happening? What's going on? And it's pretty pretty simple in my mind, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll go off on a little bit of a rant. So buckle up, buttercups. <laughs> okay. But, you know, part of it is we continually to believe the lies in our head, right? I'm a big fan of books. I'm reading like Robert Greene and mm -hmm. he talks about we, like our sales goals, they're not rational. They're best guesses, but then people feel they're rational. So we make bad decisions and we have leaders who think sales are turnkey, right? And believe me, I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to a leader, a sales leader, or a, particularly a co-founder or a founder. They're like, well, I read the challenger sale and that's what I do. Why can't they just go do it? And it's, dude, you're not good at sales because you read a book over the weekend. Get the fuck off that idea. That, mm -hmm. that is not going to work. And no offense to Matt, because you can pick up some good things over the weekend, but you're not an expert. And I have to remind these leaders that the reason you're selling more then your sales team is because of who you are and your right. title. You are the founder and the CEO, and there's an in, a much greater inherent trust in that piece. So there's a little bit of lunacy and idiocy there. And then the last well, not, thing is- and Well, I not to mention also the founders, I was gonna say, Richard, the founders know the story, right? The storytelling is part of the way of the experience we give to our customers. I don't know, my sometimes they do. Well, they, my, they, they know the story, the but they don't know how to stop talking about how beautiful their baby is. The yeah, other okay. Maybe a different story. I worked with a lot of engineering yeah. founders that are really good at, at painting the picture and, and telling the that story. That part I got. In, in a way that sellers learn, try to struggle. Not, to right. They, yeah. can paint, they can paint a picture of pain to an extent. The challenge that I've seen with those founders is they because they've built, if they've built it, they like to talk about what it does, mm -hmm. even though, and they think that the pain is understood. And when the founders shift that mindset in my head, it, 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 uh, and they can get that piece. The other piece, the last thing, and then I'll, I'll shut up again, is everybody says they want to do better, faster, and cheaper. That's what they want. But they'll only do two out of those three. And it's always about what they think is better and faster. Or, oh. I'm sorry, what they think is faster cheaper and cheaper, and cheaper but yeah, it's not better. It's never better. Right? Yeah. They don't realize that in six months, they're going to have to rip and replace everything they just did. Yeah, it's like companies, I always give a hard time. They say, well, yeah, we want to sell more. And I said, well, before you sell more, you learn how to sell better. And it's like the part of the equation they just don't cotton on to. Better comes before more. I do think that, guys, this comes back to that, your value offering to the market. Like, how are you helping these clients actually run a better business? So that's where you're two out of three, Richard. I think there's there should be three out of three, but I don't think it has to be cheaper. It just has to be this return on investment. Am I going to get a return? Some of us on this call today, we run what would be called small businesses today. We're really open to talk to the gazillion vendors who try and reach out to us if they actually have a good idea for us running a better business. 
but the challenge we all face, I'm sure we all get blasted by them. We just get pitched all the time with somebody sending us an email telling us about them and their product and what it does, and we just don't care. All we care about is running a better business for us. Yeah. So I think if we had this kind of common sense revolution in sales, where everybody just says, it's all about them, let's figure out how to help them run a better business. Let's start training our teams on business acumen and industry acumen. Let's help our clients actually build better internal business cases because they don't do a very good job of that either. Mm-hmm. Mark, um, that's the title of your next book. The what it, Sorry, no. by the way, my first that's book really is coming one. out and it's close to that title, but thank you. All right. All right. We're looking forward to that. Hey, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time here on this particular episode. So I, just want to I give feel like more. there's another hard question coming, Andy. No, I wish okay, we had. Wish... All right, good. It's Friday. It's late on Friday. Oh, I wish we had another 40 minutes because I got a whole another set of topics I want to get into that relate to what we were just talking about. But we'll have to have everybody back and we'll do it again. So just briefly before we go is tell people how they can connect with you. Mark, we'll start with you. LinkedIn is best. Mark Cox. In, and I'm within the funnel. And I'd love to connect with everybody via LinkedIn. And your new book is coming out when? That'll be coming out in October. All right. So this episode will have gone out by then. All right. Look for Mark's book. And it's going to be title is? I haven't got the formal title yet. All right. That's, All right. Wait, that's the title? Name this Maybe this podcast creates. Insert title. <laughs> insert sales title insert here. Insert sales title. Right. <laughs> Your name here. All right. Matt. Yeah. Like Mark, LinkedIn is a great place to get a hold of me. I think, Andy, last time we did a podcast together, I got, it took me a while to get through the LinkedIn invites coming out of that. that was, <laughs> But yeah, tell me you heard me on the show here and, and you'd like to continue the dialogue. And my company is uh, DCM Insights. And the, the book we were talking about is The Jolt Effect, which came out in September. Yeah. Excellent book. You can hear about it on my previous podcast, my conversation with Matt and Richard. Yeah. This is the part where I freak everybody out. Four, one, five, five, <laughs> nine, six. Love it. Nine, one, four, nine. Four, one, five, five, nine, six, nine, one, four, nine. It is my legit cell phone number. It is not a Google number. It's my legit one. It's the same one my kids bother me with, Fantastic. too. Fantastic. So one, to Andy's or Matt's point, let me know where you heard. So I will take the call first. But yeah, call me. And of course, you can find me on LinkedIn, Richard Harris. And I'm the one who has the silly little TM by my name. Yeah. And name of your book coming out when? We think February. It's good month. That's when my Because I like it. Totally. Well, I'll tell you, just between us friends right yes. here, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, look, the title of the book is called The Seller's Journey. Excellent. Ah, so, now everything uh, makes sense. And we talked heard earlier in our conversation about, yes, yes yeah. now it all That's comes full circle. Concept. Yeah, I like it. I like well, it. Yeah, Excellent. Thanks. We're looking forward to that. So everybody, thank you. And I look forward to having you back on the show. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank all my guests, Matt Dixon, Mark Cox, and Richard Harris for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, to the WinRate Podcast with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, don't forget to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called WinRate Wednesday. And each week on Wednesday, you'll receive an actionable tip that you can put to use in your selling to become a more effective seller and to accelerate your win rates. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.